Chapter 13, Turnabout By some estimates, you and I will cross paths with as many as 80,000 people during our lifetimes. Many of those folks will encounter will be passing acquaintances. Others will be family, friends, and co-workers who remain in our lives for decades. If even one of those people has one of those people has a lasting impact on us, we're fortunate. Lorraine was my one. I met my therapist shortly after before the suicide attempt. I was still hurting myself, which is what led me to her doorstep. I did most of my cutting in private, but as I spiraled deeper into depression, that shifted. After a horrible fight with Brian, for instance, I'd pull out a blade right there in front of him and drag it across my forearm. No, stop, he'd scream, leaping to grab the razor from me. He was terrified. Though he had his own issues, Brian was a good person. The guy did his best to pull me from my crisis. But it's hard to help someone who won't help him or herself. Because of the state I was in, I wanted Brian to be more than a boyfriend to me. I wanted him to be my therapist, my savior, my knight, who galloped in on a white horse to rescue me, the way it happened happens in a Disney fairy tale. That ridiculous expectation put even more weight on our fragile relationship. You need to see someone, he'd tell me. This crap is getting really scary. I agreed, but I sure as hell wasn't going to go back to that Jackie O wannabe. So one evening, when I was particularly desperate, I googled low-cost clinics in Boston. Near the top of the results was a name of a center in my area. I called and made an appointment. The next day, I showed up at the clinic and took a spot in the waiting room. I sat down next to this young Asian dude who was glued to his Blackberry. Across from us sat a blonde girl flipping through the pages of the old, an old Cosmo. They both looked normal and cool. I prayed the same was true of this experience. Seconds later, a Latina woman stepped out of a swinging door. She was about five feet three, probably in her mid forties, and rocking a cute skinny jeans, rocking cute skinny jeans and a fitted blazer. Ringlets of short black hair framed her round face perfectly. She had on a pair of stylish glasses. Nice, I thought. This might work. I'm Lorraine, she said. Her eyes were bright and her expression warm. She seemed cordial, but not that perky Pollyanna kind of friendly that makes you want to puke. You must be Diane, she said. I nodded, stood, and followed her back through the swinging door and down a long hall. We settled into a corner office. So what brings you in today? I stared at her. The usual crap, the type I'd given the first counselor, swirled around my head. Before I could dish it out again, I caught myself. No point in yelling for a life preserver if you're not going to take it. I cleared my throat and sat up. Well, I said, things have been tough lately. I glanced down at the rows of fresh cut marks on my brown skin. She looked too. What's been happening, hon? She asked. I've been hurting myself, I told her. Before I could continue, tears tumbled down from my lids and down onto my shirt. It was the first time I'd heard myself say these words out loud, and as I did, the realization of how close I'd come to dying swept over me. Lorraine didn't appear to be taken aback or surprised by what I told her. In fact, she scooted closer to me. Why do you think you cut yourself, Diane? She asked. I don't know, I sniffled. I guess it feels better than all the other stuff I feel. What other stuff is that? Just everything, I said. And right there, in a torrent of emotion, the whole ugly mess of the previous six years came spilling out. How frightened I'd been in the months following my parents' deportation, the stress I was under to take care of myself, the financial disaster I was in, my crazy relationship with Brian, 
the class stitching, the drinking, the partying, the big responsibility I felt as mommy and poppy's only hope for returning to America. The guilt I felt for locking out my parents when they repeatedly tried to connect with me. As I told my story, Lorraine never took her eyes off me. She let me completely finish before she spoke. You know, Diane, she whispered, what you're feeling makes me makes so much sense. She sat back in her chair. When your mother and father were taken from you, she went on, you were forced to become your own parent. That's an enormous load that no 14-year-old should have to carry. It's time for you to put down that burden. She handed me a tissue. At the end of our meeting, she asked me, would you like to come back in and see me? Sure, I said, pulling a stray tissue from my purse to wipe down my face. That would be cool. You're going to be okay, Diane, she assured me as she walked back me back out of the lobby. I'd love to tell you that our session was enough to immediately straighten, straighten things out for me. But I still had thoughts. Lorraine couldn't wave some magic wand and poof, make everything work out for me. That's not how it goes for any of us. It's taken years for me to see that. While Lorraine's tenderness didn't keep me off that ledge, it had much to do with why I didn't ultimately jump. She clearly cared what happened to me, and that gave me one reason to carry on. On the evening I came so close to ending my life, I crept back downstairs, tiptoed into our dark condo, slid under the sheets next to Brian, and cried myself to sleep. I never told him what happened. I didn't initially reveal it to anyone. The episode hadn't been a plea for help, a way for me to get rid of the world's attention, get the world's attention by screaming, look here, please save me. Rather, it was a quiet moment between God and me when I had to decide whether I would go on. Part of me wanted the pain to be over. That's how much anguish I was in. But a bigger part of me knew that if I remained strong for a while longer, my story could have a different ending. Christmas Day was a blur. I spent it in my PJs, upset as Brian tried to do things to help, like making me a cup of tea. A few days later, at the start of 2008, I dragged myself back into Lauren's office and admitted to her that I was still having thoughts of hurting myself. I also told her I'd even been looking at websites that supported such behavior. The whole thing was effing disgusting, and I was so desperate. She listened and offered consolation. I'd like for you to go on anti-anxiety medication, she told me. We'd still have to work through everything, but the prescription would get you stable. I refused. Given the problems I'd had with the ADD prescription, not to mention my alcohol abuse, I didn't want to take anything I could get hooked on. I needed to detox. That's fine, Lorraine reassured me. So we'll need to focus heavily on behavior changes, because I do believe that you can change, Diane. Yeah, whatever, I thought. Even as I doubted that, I hope she was right. After struggling through my last semester and failing some courses, I'd had to make them up during the summer. I was disappointed that I didn't get to walk across the stage with Adrian and my other classmates. But I did have one thing to celebrate. I'd lived to see my 22nd birthday. They say old habits die hard, but they're dang near impossible to break when you keep yourself intoxicated. Once school was over, I got a new, a new nightclub gig. I'd gone there to interview for a bartending position, but the manager took one look at me and said, Sweetie, you're my newest cocktail waitress. I soon discovered that cocktail waitress was code for a skimpy dressed hussy who happened to serve cranberry and vodkas. It was the last job in the world I should have had but it was the one way I figured I could earn fast cash every weekend. I was right on both counts. 
Six of us worked the 9 p.m. to 2 a.m. shift on Thursdays through Sundays. There were a couple of white college girls from New Jersey, both in the area to study fashion and PR. My girl Amir was in nursing school at the time. Others just party for a living. I forget what the other did. others did. My favorite was Luciana. She was a sweet girl from Brazil. She was fair-skinned and athletic and had a tiny waist and an amazing J-Lo booty. Her hair swung down past her waist. The first time I saw her, I was like, holy F, how on earth do you have hair that long? Luciana's family had come to the States when she was small, but somehow she sounded a bit like she'd grow up in the Boston section of Belo Horizonte. Her accent was this weird mix of a Brazilian one and a wicked Bostonian one. She'd be like, Diane, come out to the car, as in, park the car in Harvard Yard. Her dream was to become a registered nurse, and she was using the money from this job to pay for school. She was so much fun and a good friend. In fact, she was one of the the people who really encouraged me to pursue acting. We were all these young women at 22, I was the oldest group, and was in the group, trying to figure out what the heck we were going to do with our lives. You here all weekend, Lucinia? Luciana asked me one Friday. We were getting dressed in the bar's green room. On one side of the space was a floor-length mirror, the sort you see in a dancer's studio. On the other side was a short row of lockers in which we stored our belongings. The space was so tiny that we basically were tripping over each other as we struggled to put on our outfits. Every night, I squeezed into a tight corset that pushed my boobs up to my chin. To the top off the look, I wore high heels, fishnet stockings, and boy shorts that were basically underwear. Don't judge. Yep, I'm here till Sunday, I told her, as I painted on a thick coat of mascara. Is Heather coming in tonight? She asked. I cracked up at the way she pronounced Heather's name. I think so, I said. We're all on tonight. The doors opened at 10, but the party really began popping at 11. The house music thumped, the customers clustered around the tables, and we girls sashayed around the smoke-filled room to take orders. Each time I shook up a concoction for a guest, I had one myself. Vodka Red Bulls were my drink of choice. That's how I maintained my energy. It's also how I kept myself from noticing how sketchy this whole scene was. Come here and sit in my lap, beautiful, some bald, middle-aged white dude with a huge stomach whistler. Well, hello, handsome. I'd play along flirtatiously. Let me know if I can get you a second drink, okay? A large portion of the job was about being super nice to gross men who were slobbering all over my tits. Okay, they weren't all gross, and some were young and handsome, but had that Christian Bale in American Psycho look. They would say hello, but all I would hear is, do you want to come to my place so I can cut you up into little pieces? Then there were the few who were really cool, and to be honest, I thanked them all. Had it not been for the ridiculous spending, I wouldn't have had a way to support myself. You could call it my first acting gig, and let me tell you, I was so convincing that I should have earned an Oscar. Certain dudes would come back night after night and request me or one of the other waitresses. They felt we had a connection with them. Either that, or they were lonely, or horny, or just wanted to party, or all three. In between pouring cocktails, we'd get up on the tables or stage and dance to entertain the crowd. If you asked me then whether I was having fun, the answer would have been yes, definitely, 150, 150%. But that's because I was so super drunk that I had no true awareness of how I felt. Even as we'd get dressed in the back, I'd already have my clear plastic 
water bottle filled with vodka. All of us threw back so many shots that I, we could hardly stand up straight by closing times. In my heart, I knew this was a terrible environment for me. I had made myself forget that by numbing out. Behind the scenes, there was drama and plenty of it. For starters, we all competed with one another for Friday and Saturday nights. The shift when you can make the most in tips. Things got nasty whenever a new girl came in and tried to get a spot. Aside from that, arguments erupted over pay. Every evening, one server would stay in the back and collect all the gratuities, and then we split the pool at the night's end. I saw Heather stuff a wad of, ca- a wad of cash in her bra, Luc- Luciana once whispered to me. She's jipping us. After scoping out the situation for a few days, we realized the others were also pocketing a crap ton of our money. One on a night when we should have left there with 800 bucks, for instance, we'd ended up with half that. When Luciana confronted a couple of girls, a fight broke out in the locker room. Like I said, drama. Outside of my moonlighting, I had a life, an extremely busy one at that. In the fall of 2008, I enrolled in a one-year paralegal program at Bunker Hill Community College in Charlestown. Charleston. Charlestown. I'd moved on from the idea of a career in diplomacy and became more interested in law. If I had become an attorney, I figured I could one day represent my parents' case. I could also become an advocate for immigrant families. But law school is such a major expense, a little more loans, that I wanted to first check out the industry and see if I liked it. My plan was to get certified as a paralegal, work with lawyers, and then decide whether I still wanted to apply to law school. I also took a part-time receptionist position at a law firm, specializing in personal injury cases. Between that and my waitressing school, I was barely catching any Z's. With so much going on, there wasn't a bunch of time left over for me to see Lorraine. Even so, I fit in sessions every other week. In the first few months, I did most of the talking as she nodded and took notes. But over time, as she got a clearer sense of my issues, she began challenging much, challenging much of what I told her. Like this. I used to think I wanted to be a performer, I said. I'm not considering law. What made you change your mind, she asked. A career in the performing arts isn't practical for me, I told her. Why? Because it's too late, I explained. If I wanted to be in musical theater, I should have gone to a conservatory. She removed her glasses and placed them on her lap, then looked right at me. Girl, she said, do you think you're just afraid that if you went after that dream now, you'd fail at it? It may be why you set up those roadblocks for yourself. I squirmed in my chair. What roadblocks, I said. What do you mean? I mean that you get in your own way, whether or not you're aware of it, she explained. Look at the choices you've made over the last few years. Notice how often you've got cl- gotten close to completing a goal that's important to you, and then you've fallen off track. That's probably not a coincidence. I sighed and tried to, tried to wrap my brain around what she was saying. I guess so, I said. But I'm not even sure if I still want to be an entertainer. Really? she said, raising her brows. You light up every time you mention it. I shrugged. I don't know, I said. I may not be good enough. I may have doubted my own talent, but the girls at work thought I had a knack for performing. Every night as we got dressed, I'd break out my best material for them. I had this one spoof where I'd imitate Britney Spears dancing in the video Stronger. I would make my voice sound all high like hers while swinging my hair from right to left left to right, and do these insane moves over the chair the way she does, only I would trip over the chair and make it as unsexy as I could. My friends laughed hysterically. 
One day, a man walked by and suggested I'd never do that again because it indeed wasn't sexy. Ah, shove it, you pig, I snapped. What do you know? Diane, why aren't you trying to be an actor? Luciana would ask. What's with this law thing? You could totally be on TV. That sounded good, and I looked forward to going to work so I could show off whatever new routine I'd come with. But entertaining my friends was one thing. Making a living and putting myself out there in front of the world was another matter altogether. My drinking had stopped, but I had been practicing my daily affirmations, courtesy of Lorraine. Forgive yourself, Diane. Today is a new day, I'd say to myself. It's okay if you drink, as long as you can get up the next morning and accept yourself. Ha, that's right. I made up the sentence, the last sentence of that part, last sentence of that affirmation so it could fit my lifestyle. That worked for the most part, except when I got terribly sad. When you fling open the doors of your heart, it's incredibly painful. You want to escape, and I often did. But at least I wasn't doing that as much as tearing into my skin. When you have the urge to cut, Lorraine had told me, squeeze some ice in your hand instead. Believe it or not, that worked for me. That and a little yoga. Namaste. It was life-changing. Be kind to yourself, Dee. I'd often have to remind myself. I still do. A session at a time, Lorraine's idea began to stick. She was right. Most of my moves had been based off the fact that I was scared out of my mind. What if I did everything in my power to become a success, but become a success only to fail miserably? What if I pursued a career in entertainment and got booed, booed off the stage? What if people didn't like me? In many ways, I've been tripping myself up so that I n- never have to answer those questions. It's interesting what you start noticing about yourself when you pay close attention. You're allowing fear to block your greatness, Lorraine often reminded me. You've got to change your mindset. She had a point. Fear is what had kept me from applying to a conservatory. And fear was dodging the dream I claimed to no longer want. Hashtag self-sabotage. Meanwhile, week after week, I sat there at the desk job, answering phones and finding documents. I absolutely hated it. I have never been more bored in my life. The minutes literally dragged by, and the whole time, this whisper I'd been hearing, this nagging sense that I was meant to be doing something else, grew louder. I wasn't supposed to be sorting through legal documents. I belonged not in a courtroom, but on a stage, or on a set. Yet law was a safe option, or so I thought. That's why I clung to it so hard. By then, though, I figured out this wasn't the road for me. Rather, it was a detour from the route I was too frightened to take. During our months together, Lorraine gave me many gifts, and one of the greatest came during a session in the summer of 2009. I was telling Lorraine, again, about all the ways I dropped the ball, all the stupid decisions I made, all the times I left myself others, uh, myself and others down. Usually, she let me vent fully before she spoke. On this day, she interrupted me. You want to know something, Diane, she said. What? I answered, surprised that she cut in. You are not your mistakes. Lorraine stared at me for the longest time as as that sentence hung in the air between us. I lowered my head and fiddled with my bangle bracelets and looked up at her again. Your failures don't define you, she continued. Your worth isn't about what you do or don't do. You have value simply because you're here. I dropped my eyes to the floor and let that sink in. I spent my entire childhood trying to be a good Catholic girl trying to earn the approval of others, trying to not make the mistakes my brother made, trying to show everyone that I wasn't going to be that child, the daughter of an immigrant who fell in a ditch. 
and after all that struggle, I was completely worn out. I didn't have it in me to keep pressing anymore, to keep pressing forward. The fact that I had at last thrown up my hands made me, in my own eyes, a total F-up. But in Lorraine's view, it made me a human being, one who deserved to be here, whether or not I did another the right thing that day. Pick yourself up and try again. What a revelation. Our lives, our lives try to get our attention in countless ways, through our gut instincts, through our loved ones, through our circumstances, and in my case, through an angel God once sent me, sent to me at exactly the right juncture. Lorraine showed up in my life when I urgently needed a friend to help me see the truth. She did that, and it was all that she could do, because I'd reached the place we all get to where no amount of compassion or love or hand-holding from someone can, else can change things. It was on me. As I had done on that rooftop, I had to close my eyes and make a choice that I wanted better for myself. In November 2009, one year after I'd nearly slipped from this world to the next, I made a couple of moves. First, I let go of the delusion of a career in law. I then enrolled in an acting course at Boston Casting. And finally, I got headshots taken. <laughs>